maybe there's this cross-pollination going on between what we think of typically as fine art and what, you know, kind of what we're doing here. And does one inform the other? You know, it's kind of like at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, where, you know, photography is really starting to come into its own. And you had traditional arts on the other side. And one didn't, you know, really kind of overpower the other. It's like both of them forced each other to become more creative. And welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Today's episode is the second half of my conversation with Florida-based artist, educator, author, and architect James Richards. Catch the first half in episode 43. In reality, the separation between these two episodes was only a five-minute break to drink water and stretch our legs but somehow we came back from it fully recharged and eager to share more stories. So in this episode, you find some beautiful digressions and lovely detours. I had a lot of fun speaking with Jim. We begin by addressing our shared reluctance to show up for meetings and how a single person can be both an introvert and an extrovert. We talk about how Jim began to travel as an architect and how that would lead to sketching workshops all over the world. We speak about the concept of stealing like an artist. Jim has consistently chosen creativity and autonomy in his life, often at the cost of traditional career goals. His life story reminds me of my cartooning hero Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. In my favorite quote by him titled, A cartoonist's advice, Bill Watterson says, To invent your own life's meaning is not easy, but it is still allowed. And I think you'll be happier for the trouble. Find show notes, more insights, and related links on my publication, The Sneaky Art Post, linked in the episode description. Sign up to add sneaky art to your inbox. like uh, Larry, I can't remember his name. He he says, I've never been to a meeting where I wanted the other guy to show up. You know, I I just get petrified thinking about going into these one-on-one or, or, you know, five people together in a room or something like that if I don't already know them. And um, I think all that's just rooted in insecurity for me. (laughs) But... But but it's true. Yeah, there's I stone cold introvert and then bouncing off the walls extrovert all kind of in the same day. Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh, when I was very young, I was quite introverted and I was very nervous about speaking in front of people. There's actually a very specific event that I credit with getting me over the hump. Uh, I was part of this computer society in my school like we used to organize a tech fest and we would have all these schools come together and we would have a bunch of coding competitions and gaming competitions and all kinds of other non-tech things just a school fest inter-school fest and I was part of the people organizing it and I was very happy to be in the back not looking at not having to speak with people 
and we had to give an end of year address about what we had done over the whole year. And it was going to be recited by someone else who was the secretary of the club, but he was amazingly bad at writing. So I wrote it. I wrote this. I wrote the speech for him that he was supposed to deliver, but he didn't show up. So they asked me to deliver. And this was a, this was a strange time. So part of the story is that I had never used a laptop before in my life. And this friend of mine put the laptop in front of me with my speech on it and said, you just have to read it out. And I said, good morning. I introduced myself and the laptop went to sleep. Oh, no. And what? why it's why it's important that it was my first time using a laptop is that I didn't know what it meant that it went to sleep. I just thought it's gone. Like, I, I will not like I didn't know that I can switch it on. I thought it's just it's done. Now I have to speak because I started speaking already. And I'm lucky that the uh, the the dais had a cover in front of me so people couldn't see my legs shaking because my legs were shaking the whole time. I had written the speech so I knew what to say, but I had to say it extempore. And I went through that whole experience, five minutes of talking about all these things that I knew, but now I had to say it to hundreds of people without the reference, without having anywhere to look. I couldn't stare at my screen anymore. And I think that got me over the hump. I was more comfortable talking to people after that. I Now I say that I don't care at all. You can get, put me in front of 10,000 people. I, I can speak my mind and I can say whatever I want to say with the same consideration and I won't fumble my sentences. I won't be nervous. Still, I would exactly agree with what you said about entering a meeting and hoping, hoping with fingers crossed that the other person is not there. This happens to me for every single appointment. I can also confirm that this absolutely happened just a few minutes before I joined this call as well. I had this little sliver of hope that, you know, maybe he'll just forget about this and <laughs> he'll just forget to turn up and then we'll have to reschedule for maybe next week and I won't have to do this now. <laughs> There's no reason for it, but it's this instinct is just always there that maybe I don't have to do this at all. Maybe I don't, I've canceled so many appointments with people simply because I couldn't bring myself to to go out. Yeah. It's, it's odd. Yeah. It's very odd. It's almost, it's so rude in some ways because people are giving you time, but I can't do it sometimes. Like I just can't bring myself to speak to people and be around people. And I have to take these very strange decisions. Well, and then you wonder if they're the same way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're, we're all coming to a meeting where nobody wants to show up. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all pretending to the same enthusiasm. But eventually you come around to that. It does get exciting, you know, and and I've loved those situations where you went in not knowing someone and, and most of the time you leave and you still don't know them or, or you know enough to know you don't like them. And, but but every now and then something clicks and you've got, you know, a bandmate all of a sudden. It's like, like yeah, this I'm glad I came. That was Larry David, by the way, that said that. So that tells you where that mindset's coming from. Right, right. And I can completely see him having the crankiness around having to meet people. But uh, the process of drawing and the lovely discoveries I've had being an urban sketcher in a foreign country, not having you know a, a friend circle of my own, with having to seek out friends as an adult, 
And the ease with which I could do that around urban sketches has sort of given me faith in unexpected good things happening. So leaving a little room for magic, like not knowing how a sketch is going to turn out, but still going out to make it. And then something will happen. And the same thing for human interactions. I, I think somebody ought to make a brass plaque or something with that thing that, that you just said. I just, just absolutely, leaving room for magic. I'm, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I wrote it in just today's newsletter to my readers. But if I did, this is probably going to be the title of my next one. Well, I'm I'm just really really glad that for for whatever reason you reached out to me to do this because uh, beyond you know informing or inspiring or whatever the these things do, I'm just really happy to connect with you. I mean, just just a, a really wonderful experience that, and I hope we get a chance to meet sometime these days. Who knows what's going to happen with that? We used to have these great. Have you been to a symposium with Urban Sketchers? I have gate crashed one symposium because I. This was the one in Chicago in 2017, or was it 16? Uh, but I. This was the year that I decided to become an artist, or well, to learn to draw, not to become an artist. I happen to be living in Chicago and I decided that I'm going to walk around with a sketchbook because I love this city so much. It's completely blowing my mind every day. And I'm going to walk around with a sketchbook and a pen and I'm going to draw things and I'm going to keep doing it until I learn how to draw. That was my rule for myself. And while I was walking around this way, I noticed a poster by a lamppost saying Urban Sketchers Symposium. And... I had seen the hashtag before, but I didn't know that this was a thing that was like, I, Chicago is at the center of many activities, many creative activities. And I had never before been in a city that was at the center of such activities. So it was a surprise to me. But then I reset to the understanding that, of course, this sort of thing would happen in Chicago. It's a big city. This is what big cities do. So it was too late to register. Uh, I didn't know. It was just a month away, I think. And tickets of course sell out in seconds so i couldn't register but i followed some people around on a sketch crawl and uh, watched what they're doing made some conversations and then i snuck into the main hall where things were happening just to take a take a gander at you know what is this thing who are these people i love that i absolutely love that but you know um you're you're gathering enough information and insights and you you know you do that long enough and you start to see patterns and and uh categories of things and certainly have some amazing stories you ought to speak at a symposium i would i would love for such an opportunity a part of me is very eager for such an opportunity and another part of me says that that would be too self-indulgent. I don't. I don't know what what the answer is. I get that, but self-indulgent. I mean, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. It's a it's a hard thing to to get yourself up for it. You know, and and you really need to think of it as a as a service that you're doing. And 
it, it, it happens all the time that, that you realize when somebody like the Iranian professor, you, you don't know how what you write or what you draw or what you say is going to impact people that you'll never meet and you'll never know about. And man, it just seems to me that you've got a great opportunity to, uh, it, it's, it's not about, you know, promotion or, or anything like that. It's about putting those stories out there. And then, you know, you're, you're changing people's lives sometimes without even knowing it. I, I absolutely agree. Now, in this second half of our conversation, I'm very curious to see how you wanted to express yourself as a journalist. Then you found something in landscape architecture that tickled you in many different ways. You started to pursue that. And at some point, through this love, this consistent love for drawing and representing your world, comes this moment where you start to become also an artist. And of course, you're an artist while you're drawing, but you're also becoming an artist, I think, the first time you make a sale. So I want to ask you a little bit about this, and pardon the pun, the first brush with becoming an artist. What, what was that like? How did it happen? When was the first time you gave yourself the permission to use that word for yourself? Well, I, I never did it on my own. There were artists that I ran into online. Uh, you know, one was, was Rebecca Venn, who's this amazing figure drawing artist that does fine art pieces that way, very prolific. And one time she, you know, called me an artist and I, I went back and said, what do you mean by that exactly? You know, because I, that's not how I think of myself. And she explained in, in one sentence, you know, well, you do this, you do this, you do this. Um, I know bullshit when I see it, she says, and you're an artist. Uh, so on it, you know, and I was really, really flattered, but I did, you know, me, I, she doesn't really know who I am, you know, it's just a, so, you know, a few years go by and drawing on the street, people came up and just were asking if I'd be willing to sell this or that, or more often, uh, do you sell these things? And so I put up a little society six site that I could, you know, have people buy prints and those types of things, uh, just so that my wife could give them a card when they're asking and say, well, you can, you know, you can pursue these things here. And I started selling things, but I, I still didn't really consider my myself an artist. I, maybe I, you know, kind of some combination of, of sketcher journalist or something like that, that people just found the stuff interesting and, uh, and, and wanted to, to have some of it around their house. When it got really interesting was when arts groups started asking me to come and give workshops. You know, an early one was Southwest Watercolor Society. And one of their officers came to me and said, you know, if, if we were to get you a three-day workshop slot, and, and I knew that those were coveted, you know, by, by watercolor artists. They said, if we were to, how much 
would you need to do that? Thinking, you know, money, how much would I charge them? And I told them what I got for a typical three-day workshop. And they said, we can swing that. You know, would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, you're the Southwest Watercolor Society. I'm not a watercolorist. They said, oh, no, we've got plenty of those. We want to learn what you're doing. And so all of a sudden there's this gray area, you know, is it is it art? Is it not? Does it matter? You know, kind of thing. And uh, about almost three years ago, I was approached by uh, the Madeline Island School for the Arts, as was Uma and Paul Heaston and Sherry Bakov, all for the same thing. They wanted to get four of us there to do a week-long workshop and expose students to, to all four of us. And the reason that I accepted was because I'd never been invited to a real art school before to do something like that. I, you know, Patty and I have done workshops for, I think last time we counted, it was 27 different university design schools all over the U.S. and a few, you know, flung around the globe here and there. But that's, I related to that, you know, and I can understand why they wanted me to come. But an art school? That's kind of interesting. And um, I still don't completely know what to uh, what to think about it because I, I, I don't really think of myself as an artist. I think of me as a person that's just doing the work I've been given to do and I want to try to, to spend myself doing it and and feel like I've been been faithful to that that calling. But um, you know, Interesting things happen in, in situations like that. When the four of us went to do this thing at the at the Madeline Island School, uh, they'd never had any urban sketchers before, and they were intrigued by this whole notion and what a phenomenon it had become globally. And asked if we'd come. Now they're used to having uh, fine art watercolorists, you know, Alvaro Castanet and, and um, you know, people like that, really, really big deals. And they, they've also done some things like, you know, quilting and that kind of thing. But they were really interested to see how this would work out since they had never done it before. And towards the end of that week-long workshop, the person who had recruited the four of us came to me and she says, the whole staff is talking about this. We've never seen anything like this before. She said, you know, frankly, a lot of our fine arts teachers, pretty high maintenance. You know, we, we, we get some divas and we've got to deal with all that. And, and, you know, even the artists that come have to have this and have to have that and, and aren't frankly very social. She said, but when I went into town, and I saw all you people sitting on the sidewalk, drawing our town and talking to the people. I, I said, these are good people, you know, she said. And, and so what's fascinating to me is maybe there's this cross-pollination going on between what we think of typically as fine art and what, you know, kind of what we're doing here. And does one inform the other? You know, it's kind of like at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, where, you know, photography is really starting to come into its own. And you had traditional arts on the other side. 
and one didn't, you know, really kind of overpower the other. It's like both of them forced each other to become more creative. I, I'm completely fascinated by that. And I see the same type of thing with with traditional drawing approaches and whatnot with all the technology that's available. And, and they really do influence each other. And so I'm just really curious about how urban sketching will, will if if it does, uh, influence art. And I know it's already happening vice versa. You know, you've got a lot of us that are taking fine art classes to, to better our techniques so that we can tell our stories better, as I was talking about earlier, with the light. It'll be interesting to see if we start to see more of these watercolor artists approach more of a more of a storytelling approach. You know, I, I was asked recently to write a little thing about the difference uh, well, it was for Plain Air magazine, wanting to know about urban sketching. And, you know, what I what I said was that, you know, primarily uh, Plain Air is rooted in the arts and urban sketching really is rooted in journalism. Uh, Gabby Campanario, you know, coming from the Seattle Times and, and that sort of thing. And I said, there's certainly some overlap there, but uh, at the end of the day, if you get to the roots of it, that's really where it's coming from. And uh, we, th we think of ourselves as storytellers and, and where plain air by definition happens outside, we can be outside, inside, we can be in a car, you know, in, in all kinds of things and, and collect these stories. And boy, wouldn't it be interesting if more fine artists were outside kind of getting dirty in the street and and that sort of thing beyond the plein air experience of putting up an easel and you know painting the barn or, or something like that so I, I i still don't call myself an artist my wife does <laughs> that's so she can have something easy to tell people when they say what does jen do right yeah, that that last part makes a lot of sense to me, I think. Uh, but I find fascinating that you still would avoid the word artist. What you just said about, you know, the separation of fine art into different pursuits as photography came in. So there's this really interesting essay by this critic called Arthur Danto. And he wrote this essay called The End of Art. And he said this in, he wrote this in response to Andy Warhol who he uh, credited with ending art. And this is not a bad thing. Like he said it as a good thing. And it's, uh, so uh, his idea of art, it has been criticized because it's a very uh, West gazing model. Like it doesn't incorporate the, the depth of art all over the world and the depth of art movements all over the world. So taken with a grain of salt, he points to two narratives of art. And the first narrative of art ended right when you mentioned with the coming of photography. So a narrative is a very particular word here because uh, a narrative has a beginning, middle and end. So a story arc of art ended when photography came in because prior to that, as he points out, the job of art partly was to, way, was to be a way for us to remember the world. It's the only way we can know what a person looked like in history. It's the only way we might know how a kingdom looked or how a, an architectural con, uh, construction looked or how the just the landscape looked. There's no other way to communicate that truth to people unless you put it down in art. 
but photography comes in and suddenly displaces art from this throne. And the first narrative of art ends there. What should art now do? What should it now be? And this is the time, of course, where we see impressionism and cubism and surrealism and all these other explorations. What else can art be if it's not an, of the most faithful representation of our real world? And it set people free to explore these different streams. And that's given us all the amazing art we've seen as a result. But then he pointed out the end of art came with the end of this second narrative with Andy Warhol's, specifically the Brillo boxes that he made. And his uh, contention was that now there was no longer a separation of art from the real thing. There was no categorical way that you could say that Andy Warhol's Brillo box was art, but an actual random Brillo box was not art. So what is the separation between the art and the object? This separation has dissolved and therefore art has ended. And uh, it's, it's an interesting way to think about it because a lot of critics and a lot of people then think about what is the art that came after it. We often hyphenate all the descriptions with post. So it's post-modernism, it's post this, it's post that. But what role is it fulfilling in our lives? So when you say that you don't think of yourself as an artist, I'm also thinking a little bit about what does the word artist mean to us? What is the role of art now in today's world? And how do you find yourself sort of fulfilling a certain role through what you describe as urban sketching or being a sketcher? And what do you then consider to be the role of the artist? That's really a, a, an interesting question. I don't think in terms of what I do and, and is it art or is it not, but I have taken a lot of uh, workshops and even one-on-one -on -one sessions with fine artists to try to up my game in terms of technique and I, uh, I i would tell them well i i i know what i'm about and what my work is about but i need to up my craft so that it can match the ideas and and the inspiration if if you will and what some of them have told me is is well you know what you're doing is is decorative art and this is fine arts over here, what I'm doing. And, you know, the difference is that mine is designed to elicit emotion, you know, and that you're putting some of your, your, your soul into it. And that's pretty wonderful, but um, it's just not my motivation. And if, if I went into creating a piece out on the street that, that my main motivation was to express my emotions and try to bring emotions out of someone else. Uh, if that happens, that's great, but that's not the reason I'm doing it. Uh, I'm doing it for a whole host of reasons that run from kind of historic documentation to helping make people aware of what's around them, you know, the, the kind of magic of the everyday type thing and, you know, bring some joy to myself and, and to people who, who see the things. So, um, 
I, I couldn't tell you how I fit into that larger concept of art, except to say that it's just not an issue for me, you know. But it's interesting that the things you describe, the goals you describe, are the goals that I would ascribe to art, to help people see things, to help them be more mindful of their world, to help them appreciate ordinary uh, beauty in ordinary life. Because, of course, a lot of the artists we admire also made beauty out of very ordinary things. There are countless watercolorists and painters and fine art painters inspired by Vincent van Gogh, the Dutch Golden Age painters, and all of them focused, like, there was a very conscious shift in focus from royalty and subjects that had previously been considered worthy of art to a focus on normal life and peasant life and natural surroundings, literally, as they as they appear to us. And that, again... I feel like maybe there were conversations even back then about how this cannot be art because art needs to be something that depicts a god or something that depicts the elite people of our society who deserve to be commemorated in paint. Interesting. You know, and it makes me think about my work relative to what my wife and I have collected over the years. And almost all of it would be categorized as outsider art, you know, folk art that is done by people who, you know, aren't, at least they didn't used to be recognized by the art world. And they, they've kind of kind of come into their own. And our, our specialty was finding people who were undiscovered. Uh, so that we could pick up a painting for $300. And, you know, there's an example of this this guy in New Orleans that I really admire who calls himself Frenchy. That's that's his art alias. And, and I mean, he's of French descent and he lives there in New Orleans and he's got all these, these amazing kind of cultural influences that are happening. But he became famous by not having any commissions and just going into bars where these neighborhood brass bands were playing, you know, the Olympia brass band and the rebirth brass band and people like that and making these almost abstract paintings of that performance. But what you got from them was the energy from that performance. You know, you'd look at the painting and just boom. And we picked up, a few of his uh, really early on when he was doing that type of thing. And we've, we've gone to lots of these kind of thrown up art shows in different cities around the world and, and, and met the artists and, you know, things painted on plywood and, and driftwood and, and, you know, all kinds of strange things. Dr. Bob in New Orleans, you know, there's, who makes a lot of his art with bottle caps from soda pop and beer bottles and things like that. And I don't really understand completely why, but it just speaks to the both of us. And we take great, great joy in surrounding ourselves with that stuff. Now, now early on when, you know, I, I was, a designer, as my wife would say, with, you know, I had all the attitude and everything that went with that. Uh, the look of our place was very sleek and modernist and, uh, you know, almost bare walls. And if there was something on it, it was placed exactly right. 
and um, had, had kind of modernist leans to it. But but as we've both traveled a lot, I think as as well as aged, and 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 exposed to you know places like uh, I, I keep mentioning Istanbul because it's the thing that that pops to mind. Nairobi, you know, places with with just really interesting colors and textures and and those types of things in their art. We wanted to feel that way all the time. And so we decided that rather than collecting art, we wanted to live in art. We wanted to be surrounded by it. And our our paintings started going from a single piece perfectly placed on a wall to floor to ceiling, pretty much, of this stuff that we had seen and experienced or met the artist. And he's, he becomes like a family member, you know. And um, for whatever reason, that has served us real well in terms of my own inspiration that I look at, how can I be as honest as that? You know, um, and also when other people come in and they just, the jaws drop sometimes, I said, this looks like a museum, you know, but, but, but not a museum, you know, where they've got ropes where you can't touch anything, but just the sheer quantity of things and the fact that you're not just putting them over the couch, you know, it's, it's, it's the whole wall and it's the hallway and it's the bedrooms and, you know, you just wander around and look at these things. And uh, I don't know, that's those are the people that, that I consider real artists and they sometimes I, I think more often than not don't know why they're doing it they're just compelled to do it I, I found this piece of driftwood and i've got to do this on it that feels really honest and authentic to me and for that reason i have very little patience with with folks or or, or societies or organizations or whatnot well this this can't be a real painting according to our guidelines because it's got a little colored pencil on it and it's got this and this and this and this and so you're some kind of barbarian or something well you know these folks that i'm talking about no limits you know on on putting together things that are to me just deeply moving that's that's where I'm coming from from an art standpoint, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love the idea of walls full of these paintings that make you think. There's this thing I've I've done all my life that I would have different books in different rooms. And a lot of these were books that I'd already read, but I'm very big on rereading. And entering any room became about that book in a way, because that's the book I'd pick up then if I was just sitting around. And that day would be spent reading that book. And if I spent my day in another room, I would be accosted by another question and another story because of the book that I had placed in that room. And it feels, it sounds to me like that, like your relation with the art in your house is that it is throwing questions and ideas at you every time you look up from everyday life. Well, that's true, as is... um a lot of them bring back the smells and the sounds and you know of 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 where they're they're from they're almost all of them are very specific to place and almost all of them have a story you know um 
how it came about or maybe things that that the artist shared with us or or whatever but just really enjoy that collecting as we we travel and 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 again i guess that that's my favorite kind of art yeah yeah let's let's talk a little bit about about traveling uh you mentioned that growing up your world was a lot smaller being in university you had the first opportunities to sort of expand your perspectives going up the west coast going up the east coast now how did travel come into your life after this period how did it get incorporated with the idea of sketching your world and having sketchbooks on you well i i'm i'm glad you you kind of reintroduced that idea of the trips up the east and west coast from school and it was two professors in particular that took that on because it takes a special kind of personality to do that that's very flexible in different situations something always goes wrong you know so you know the, these two in particular and and a kind of a sense of mission that what you're getting out of it is more important than the pound of flesh you have to put into it to get 40 students around doing something like that so flash forward 30 years later and this younger professor when i was in college is still teaching and he's still teaching now but this was in in 1999 i think uh a couple of alumni were talking to him and saying god max is professor max conrad at lsu he's still like i say he's still there that was such a great life changing experience it was transformative wouldn't it be cool if we could relive that oh god i'd give anything to relive that and max's response is well where do you want to go what do you want to do and the next year he had planned the eight country grand tour you know that the gentry used to take and and architects were compelled to take in that type of thing in the 18th century and early 19th and you had to see paris and you had to see rome and you know on and on so he said well here's what we're going to do who's who's in who's game and 40 people came along and most of them are landscape architects so we're not wealthy people by and large and we did it on a on a budget but it, it was just again an absolutely transformative experience we said this is too good we got to we got to keep doing this we couldn't afford to do it every year from a money or a time standpoint but we could do it every other year and Max started putting together these itineraries with our input of what we thought was important to see and to learn to Asia, you know, and and all over Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Scandinavia, uh China, Japan, Vietnam, Cambodia, you know, all all these different things, but always with the undercurrent of we were learning about different environments again to to kind of stock that mental uh image capacity and and also to learn about the countries the people that sort of thing and we got to where as a group we visited 40 countries together over about 18 years or so and so all of those i carried a sketchbook on pretty much less so in the early years but just constantly in filling sketchbooks uh after the first two or three trips and 
that was where an awful lot of that came from. And that started to overlap then with the age of the internet and, and first Flickr and then, uh, you know, Instagram and, and whatnot, where people would see these travel things and magazines would ask if they could publish them. And that's when uh, the, the art societies and whatnot started calling and saying, can you give workshops? Or we, we jumped out of the United States and said, well, can you come and talk to our students in Nairobi? And can you come and talk to our students in Singapore? You know, those, those types of things. And before you know it, you know, we're, we're just doing this all the time. The upside was high adventure and that, that once we started getting the, the calls and the emails, it was this fantasy of traveling the world and drawing all the time and other people paying you to do it, you know, to get any better than that. The downside was we got to the point where we were doing about 13 travel workshops a year. And, you know, we were just exhausted because if we weren't literally on the road and we were on the road about 50% of the year out, you know, you're preparing for it or you're recovering from it and trying to squeeze in family time in between that. And, 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 um, you know, one of the, the beautiful things about my career the last 10 years has been that my wife, Patty, has been able to accompany me on all this stuff. And, you know, it's just created a life for us that's, that's been like a, a fantasy in some ways. But we were flying back from a gig in Vietnam before COVID, 21-hour flight, and we said, you know, we just can't keep this up. We've got to find a pace that works for us. And so... Um, I guess about a year ago, we decided that three or four workshops a year is going to be plenty for us. Uh, we, we've got people that we love working with on these things, so we don't have to worry about the logistics or uh, all, all I've got to do is teach. And all Patty has to do is make sure that I get there. <laughs> And and then manage, you know, all the emotional ups and downs and, and you know, the craziness that, that I put her through. So uh, it's it after a while, and I think pretty early on during the international travel, it becomes less something you do than something you are, something that you become. You become this person that that needs that kind of adrenaline rush and that needs that input visually, mentally, everything else in order to feel right. So we're going to keep doing it as long as my body and my, my mental capacity will allow us to do it. But we've learned to pace ourselves. And uh, you mentioned how this is also at the time that the internet is becoming a thing in all of our lives. And these avenues and platforms by which we can share our work are suddenly popping up. And people you don't know, people who are outside your network are suddenly able to see your work. How does this time sort of change one's relationship with their, with their drawing? Like I'm thinking about 
drawing in a sketchbook when you don't have any expectation of anybody else seeing it versus drawing in a sketchbook. And especially it's so exacerbated today when you know you have so many thousand followers and something you draw is eventually going to go get posted somewhere and people are going to look at it. Does it have the tendency to push the art away from us? Like sort of, we don't see it only in service to ourselves and we start thinking about the audience that will regard it afterwards. Is there an element of this that creeps in over time? Do you have to fight it or is it a good thing? It, it certainly can. And it's pretty obvious from, from looking at things that people post that for a lot of people it is. And I feel like, like it's not for me in any big way, but if I said it doesn't influence at all, that wouldn't be completely honest either. You know, um, but but I, when I sit down to draw something, I don't think about, well, is this going to get a lot of, of likes or something like that? If if I worry about that, I can do a small sketch and, and put some orange and some turquoise on it and post it and you're done because oh, everybody's going to like this thing with orange and turquoise on it, you know, even if there's, there's not any real content to it. But um no, what, what, what drives me is that I, I'll go into a place, whether I'm familiar with it or not, and I look up and I see a drawing there. And I see a drawing in my style. And it's like, this is a once in a, in a moment opportunity that if I don't take advantage of it, it it's, it's going to be gone. Or I'll see something driving by and say, I've got to come back to this on Saturday because I you know, there's this bridge and there's the palm trees and there's all this. And I see it as, as, as this fountain pen drawing and I, I just got to do that. And so, you know, I've got things that have been ignored on Instagram and I've got other things that have gotten 4,000 likes and I have no idea why, you know, I, I put them in there and it wasn't one of my favorites. I just needed to post something. And, and so I did the, um, I, I wouldn't say that it that it impacts the art so much as it I I feel a need to keep up with with just the posting. Um for some reason I'm I'm like these old actors that don't get the call anymore. And so you're so I'm still relevant, I'm still relevant, you know, kind of thing. And so you 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 find yourself Hell, I just took a class two weeks ago from this brilliant, you know, 30-year-old who has figured out, you know, all the, the, the secrets basically to, to driving numbers up. And I thought if I can do that relatively easily, you know, why, why wouldn't you do that? Because it leads to more book sales and more workshop opportunities and things like that. And then I said, well, first, I don't want more workshop opportunities. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to, to, to cut back on that. And the other thing was that I'd rather walk at the end of the property and go fishing or, or you know, the, something, something like that. I really don't worry about it that much anymore. I, I, I still post because I think that I've got something to say. And I love the conversation between urban sketchers, especially when, when somebody's pushing something new, Paul Heaston will do something that's wildly out of context or something with, with, with what you're, you're used to seeing. 
And it's like, wow, all right, I want to find out what that's all about. Or, you know, there, there's lots of guys when when I first noticed Captain Tom's stuff and his, he started going through these evolutions of things really, really quickly. And this is just fascinating. I, I, I find these people to be very interesting and, and the way that they express themselves. It, and, and really often it's things that I aspire to. You know, this, this person can tell a story in such a spare way. It's almost like poetry you know, uh, taking things to the absolute minimum. I, I, I want to be more like that. And so I'll, I'll watch and, and collect things, but um, I can't say that it's really driven the art one way or another. I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> I feel like a part of this is also when you grow up centering yourself in the things you do and, I think it might be so much harder for someone who was very young today, who has grown up in an atmosphere in which the first instinct is to share things. And if you don't have a memory of a world that was different from this, the importance of centering yourself doesn't quite occur to you. I, I feel like I was born at the, at the changing time of these things, or I grew up when these rules were suddenly changing. I became a young adult at the time that social media became a thing. And just this morning, I was thinking about this, about how difficult it, like how much I have to fight to make it only about me. And we were talking now about in, before about introversion versus extroversion. And a part of it, part of this balance that every artist has to have today is to really think about your audience, but then to really stop thinking about your audience. And you have to do both of those things. You cannot be one. No, I, I agree. If if I wanted to just drive numbers, I, I'd have the art and then this thing about, you know, empowering yourself and all that business that that seems to play really well. But um, I, I mean, it, it's either and I, I, I don't even ask myself, is this authentic or is this honest? I just I, I'm either attracted to the prospect or I'm repelled by it. And um I guess ever since Urban Sketchers got off Flickr and started to have a a real website and you know eventually Instagram coverage and all that, um, I my goal has just been to kind of kind of keep up with what I felt like was a challenge. That okay, it's it's like being an athlete, and somebody's you know you know kind of kind of coming up, and it's not that I want to be ahead of anybody, but I want to be in the running. If, if if you can, that that doesn't even sound right. Um, it, it it's a challenge, you know. You're you're being challenged in terms of of developing your technique and trying different methods of doing things and going after different types of subjects maybe than, than you would typically do. And I think all that's real healthy. You know, I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't have people like Paul and Sherry and, and, and some of the others um, always kind of pushing, you know, it's like, like athletes or musicians or anybody else kind of pushing each other. Yeah, I, I love that aspect of our community. 
absolutely i feel like the uh, there's an early feeling we have when we just want to be better than other people but over time the more you do things the more you understand what moves you and what works for you and at that point uh, i feel like i've just about reached that point where now i'm motivated by what people do when i feel that it has opened a new door for me i have so many different questions about the things we just spoke about some a part of it is about landscape architecture and the travel i want to come back to that because i first want to ask you about this thing you mentioned about taking a certain kind of class from a younger person and they were speaking about social media a certain way and before that you had mentioned speaking to a society of watercolorists and feeling unqualified to teach them because watercolors were not your forte or that you weren't educated in this subject so this idea of education their explanation to you why you would still be a worthy instructor how has this idea of education changed also because there is a certain notion of how education works what is the hierarchy in which education works in an academic setting and now we are entering a world where we are always exposed to people all over the world with different experiences and we are just grabbing bits of impressions from everyone and that's becoming a way to learn so i guess i just want your thoughts on this about how education has changed for you as an educator and as a student over the years i guess the 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 biggest thing in terms of any kind of a of a formal teaching situation it's been unfortunate in my view but you know one of the reasons that i left university faculty was because so much of it was driven by outside forces of needing funding and all those those types of things and um what i found worked best for me wasn't driven necessarily by by techniques or the latest knowledge or something like that as much as it was principles and most of the students i had were like like me as a student they didn't really have a grounding in kind of the the, the principles and the values that drove the type of work that they aspired to do and so i found myself in the position of kind of kind of being the yoda if you will and and trying to impart the wisdom of this and uh the the things that make it worthwhile so that after you've been doing it for 40 or 50 years you still remember why you got into it you know in the first place now you were talking about how you were on the cusp of things i i was on the cusp of things where being really pre computer and kind of making a name for myself nationally as this guy that could you know do do all this stuff with my hands um to being in a position where okay in the firm you've got to learn cat or else and um and and work that way and i thought you know if i can be self indulgent for a second you know if if god gave me this talent that i've i've developed over time why is he taking it away now and i was borderline suicidal for a while you know it's like i don't have any purpose anymore and um 
what I decided was just to keep doing all I knew how to do and to figure out ways that I could keep doing it. And somebody described it once as uh, if you're running a race on a circular track and at some point you're so far behind that you look over your shoulder and you're ahead, you know, and, and all of a sudden university started needing this, you know, kind of, kind of humanized input. And so my way of teaching and education really shifted to trying to figure out the value of what drawing was in a digital age. And then it keeps progressing and, and things get more sophisticated and whatnot. And, um, it's not only a matter of knowledge and learning software and things like that. As one of my, my grants, grad students told me, he was a grandmother, it's different. You know, we're wired differently than younger folks are who have come up with this technology from the get-go. So there's a whole other level of translation there. And so I don't feel strange at all about going to a 30-year-old or a 20-year-old or whatever and saying, what's the value of this, you know, kind of in the, the greater scheme of things. And what can you teach me so that I can use it most effectively or decide that it's not the right thing? And if it's not, what is, you know, that sort of thing. And um, I don't know how else I'd function if it, if it wasn't for that. This woman that taught the class on on uh, basically the ins and outs of, of Instagram, technically, and uh, learning about the algorithms and all that kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of really good technical information and stuff that you could use right away, but you could tell that she also thought that this was a thing that empowered people, and that that was really important. And so... For, for my own education, for those types of things, I'm driven to the kind of people that have that type of, uh, there's a bigger picture here than just getting likes or getting, you know, thousands of followers or those types of things. And how can we use this as a way to, to, to kind of make things better? So I take advantage of as much of that stuff as I can. And I also take advantage of the online classes and that type of stuff. I, I buy classes from my peers, uh, you know, because I really admire how somebody, you know, Sherry or somebody might, might do a particular thing and thinking, uh, I'll, I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. And, uh, and, and there's others that are younger that, that just, you know, they, they, they have a particularly free attitude and express that with a color palette and in a, in a very joyful way. And I want to I want to learn where they're coming from. I, I dip into all that stuff and I always get a thrill, you know, out of a light bulb coming on in my, my head that wasn't on before. Uh, have you heard of this writer slash I think he's a he's an illustrator. Uh, Austin Cleon. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So his uh, what you're saying reminds me of his book titled Steal Like an Artist. Sure. His first one. Yeah. Which is which is an idea that I have loved and I have used in many ways. Like I have always stolen bits of things from 
people that I look at and people whose work I like. And then I, I think the real spirit of stealing, I think the quote is from Picasso, uh, good artists copy, great artists steal. Yeah, right. And I think about, and this made me think about what does the word steal here mean? Like it's it's not really getting away with something or doing something unlawful or doing something hurtful to the other party. But stealing here implies to take something in a way that it becomes your thing. Exactly. And it's beautiful how that works in art. Can you tell me like these urban sketchers and uh, people recently, people uh, earlier in life, what are some ideas that you've stolen from people? Oh my goodness, where to start on something like that? And and a lot of the things, they, they aren't things that I see on the internet and then decide, oh, I, I, I want to do that. A lot of them are things that I learned from the horse's mouth in workshops at especially symposiums. You know, in the old days, if you taught at a symposium, they'd let you have a couple of, of workshops for free, you know, in, in addition to your whatever you might be uh, oh, paying for your hotel, you know, and things like that. And it was a way to to just kind of say thank you for taking the time to, to teach and whatnot. And there were, you know, I, I think our third symposium was uh, down in Santo Domingo, and I took a transformative workshop with Veronica Lawler. I had been a fanboy, you know, for a long time, and to hear her approach to ideas and storytelling, and to to see how she thought about perspective by saying, you know we aren't really taught linear perspective like you guys are. We had this teacher that kind of showed us the spatial approach to it. And she showed me that, you know, it wasn't part of the workshop, but she, she just offered that. And I've adopted a bunch of those articles. Uh, you know, thumbnails, for instance, were never part of design process, but it's something illustrators do all the time. So I don't know if I'd call it stealing or you just, find a great idea that other people have known about forever. And it's like, duh, you know, okay, I'm incorporating thumbnails into the, the type of stuff that I'm doing. Other, I'm trying to think of, of this outright thievery and I'm looking at some of my work on the walls and, and whatnot over here. Um, I tell you some things I, I wish I could steal as I wish that, I could combine so many talents and influences as Rita does, Rita Sabler. I've watched her work evolve over the years and the way that she now infuses these drawings with people, in addition to what she was already doing, which is capturing these kind of vast landscapes or townscapes or something like that and filling it with notes like we used to do in landscape architecture school. And so I'm, I'm seeing that she's thinking about these things on so many levels and has the talent to pull, pull it off. Yeah, I'll, I'll take me some of that, you know. And, and, and in, a, in a case like that, I'll try to emulate that type of thing. You know, I, I don't want to try to cop a style outright. I You know, it, it feels weird. And then if you end up posting something like that, oh, it's another one of these, you know, he took this workshop. So, you know, it's, it's, 
there's a million of them out there. But, you know, Inma Serrano in Spain, she's always knocked me out. And what I would love to steal from her is the freedom that she approaches things with. I'm still a recovering landscape architect, you know, and and there's some degree of precision in what we do so that things don't fall down and kill somebody or something like that. So so there's that. But I, I remember I took a workshop of hers one time and she kind of starts us. She says, you, you, you architects, you look at the building and you see, you know, I don't think of it as a building. Think of it as a monster, you know, and in using these things with personalities and then drawing them in such a way that that you don't necessarily think it's a monster, but it sure looks different, you know, than than I would draw it, for instance. And the way that she draws figures, people on the beach and things like that. I try to do that and, you know, I work on it. So, yeah, that's 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 something I'd, I'd love to steal from her. And, and there's lots of folks like that. I wish I could do Uma's minimal stroke thing. Absolutely. I, I absolutely like what you said about like treating the building as a monster. It's making me think of like the, the purpose of a building, not only in reality, but also on the page. So uh, here's a thought. Uh, as a landscape architect, you're going to have a very uh, interesting insight on this is something I ask people in the, in the workshops that I've given and I write about often on my newsletter. The question of why is a city? And it sounds like an incomplete question, but just this, these four words matter. Why is a city? And I make the argument that a city is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's a very distinctly thought out, concerted effort to service the most number of people in the most number of ways. So the only reason a building exists is because why is a building? So a building is because people need to do work with each other or they need to sleep safely with warmth. Why is a cafe? Because people need to recharge. They need to meet other people in an informal, comfortable setting. Why is a traffic light? So that we can cross the street and get from A to B without harming ourselves or others. So the entire construction of a city is designed around meeting various human needs. And this is how I reconciled the idea of drawing buildings is that the building is only tall if there is a person standing next to it. A building standing in and of itself is not a tall building or a short building or an interesting building or a boring architectural design. Without the human context, it's not even a building. The only way we know it is a building is when people go inside it and they do something. The only way an interior space becomes a cafe is when someone drinks coffee in it. Otherwise, what is a cafe? How do you define a cafe outside of human use? And I feel like landscape architecture also is about so many of those questions. All of the design is around human use and human convenience. So I'm leading up to this question of you when you were talking about traveling different countries with a bunch of landscape and other kinds of architects, I assume, with your sketchbook and seeing places that are new, places that are old, places that are rebuilding from what used to be there before. 
what would it be like to be part of landscape architecture in a city as old as Rome or a city as comparatively new as a city in Louisiana, for example, which could go back 300 years as opposed to 2,800 years in the case of Rome. What do you observe about new cities versus old cities when you travel as a landscape architect? Well, if if it's a, a new city kind of from scratch, like Brasilia or, or something like that, that's a real easy question to answer. Older cities, to me, give a feeling of a continuum of, of human effort and dreams, you know, and, and, and that they have multiple layers. Rome is a really great example of you'll find these walls as you're walking down the sidewalk. There's no historical plaque or anything like that, but you'll see this kind of stone over these ancient bricks over a different kind of stone. And then these chiseled Roman, you know, letters and numerals and whatnot in it that are, that are, are, are giving some kind of, of message or, or information. And that kind of richness is to me what the experience of an older city like that is, is all about. In New Orleans and the French Quarter, you know, it, it, some parts of it kind of look like a movie set, but there's very old, old Spanish influence there. There's very old French influence there, Creoles, all these different types of things. And so it's inseparable in a lot of ways from the history and the culture. And you've just got all these different layers of things that are working on you all the time. And then you've got what I was describing before, which is just the visual texture of these things, the openings, the doors, the windows, and, and the proportions of those things. Are they horizontal or are they, are they vertical? And those are the types of reasons that I usually feel much more comfortable in the older cities than in the new ones. Um, you notice more in the older cities that they're more attuned to the place that they are in. You see buildings created out of local stone, and you might see a bluff off in the distance and say, yeah, see, look, you, you see how this works, you know? Or, or the Italian hill towns that look like they just grew right from the stone uh, in the hill. When I see a new one, you know, even walking around in some place like, like downtown Dallas, you really kind of have to, to put on a completely different hat. And rather than, than how you feel about it, I think, try to figure out well, why is it like this? You know, I understand why old cities have evolved as they have, but how, how did this come about in, in this way? And it, it then you, you start to, to look at it from a political standpoint and from an economic standpoint and, and all those types of things. You know, I, I remember back in the day, well, we still do, I think, uh, Dallas had a lot of these uh, underground tunnels connecting office buildings and they were lined with restaurants and they had overhead sky bridges and they had them because Minneapolis had them and had won some awards. And it was, you know, well, we, we can get us some of that kind of thing. That was part of it anyway. And people would tell you, well, it's because it's cold and you can go between the buildings and you don't. In Dallas, you know, 
really that cold? And and what it did more than anything else was suck the life off the streets. And so you you had people that that didn't feel comfortable in the business bridges and tunnels and all those types of things on the street by themselves. And then you had everybody else moving around in these kind of artificial movement systems. And it really affected the life, the, 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 the social life and the, uh, the ability of people to interact, you know, of, of, of different tribes of different ethnicities and different economic strata and all that type of thing. So I start to look at newer cities more like that. Um, you know, I don't think you've ever heard anybody write anything nice about Priscilla. And, you know, it's, it's this big, vast, flat landscape kind of done by that type of modernist thinking that, you know, the buildings are independent blocks on land and, and we want to experience them that way. It, it, a lot of times doesn't hold together as um, something that, that feels like community or that feels, feels really human. Um, you know, a, a, a fun thing to watch over the last 30 years has been the rise of new urbanism where they're built from scratch communities a lot of times, but the original one was built after years of research of going to these pre-war towns, pre-World War II, in the south of the United States where they had uh, tree-lined streets and broad sidewalks and everybody had front porches and I'm sure they realized it at the time, but, you know, the contemporary person walking down there thinks, oh, how pretty that is. But it was so much more than that because people had eyes on the street and they knew their neighbors and they got into conversations. And, you know, the houses were purposely built where you had to step up two or three steps to get to that big front porch so that it separated public from private just a little and people just didn't feel comfortable walking right up, you know, and, and but you could have a conversation across the, the rail if you wanted to. Those types of things were completely lost in a lot of modernist communities and architecture and whatnot. Now, you can debate all day long as to the architectural styles that, that were used for that, which in a lot of ways, or in a lot of instances, just kind of knockoffs of, of old historical forms and and for that reason, you know, a lot of modernist architects and faculties especially will just think that the whole thing is abhorrent. But how is it working for people, you know, at the end of the day? And I guess that's in a roundabout way what I'm what I'm trying to get to is that that familiarity and that that sense of con continuity with history and all that that you find in the older cities and the convenience and the comfort and things that you find in the newer ones, how can you put those things together in a way that, that not only makes sense, but that has a soul to it, you, you know? Um, that, you know, the, the guy that wrote Geography from Nowhere, his name escapes me right now, oh, James Kunstler, said places worth caring about. And in, in, in older communities or, or newer, very thoughtfully planned communities, I, I find a lot of things worth caring about.
and others not so much right that's that's quite interesting you mentioned the importance of how how the citizens of that community react to their urban architecture uh, working as a landscape architect how do you close that feedback loop is the, is this already part of the process to understand how something is received by its community absolutely yeah yeah if you're lucky enough to be able to work in the public realm you know a lot of the landscape architecture is for private clients and i've also done you know corporate campuses and and big estates and that type of thing it wasn't my thing but but there it's a pretty closed loop but if you're working in the public realm you're trying to come up with something that is not only safe and functional and whatnot but that speaks to the aspirations of that community and not only what is it and what it was but what it, what it can be and it's very important before you do anything to talk to lots of people and before you even draw a line you know and to say, okay, we're, we're getting started on this thing. We're not the experts here. You're the experts. Tell us what to look for and tell us what's important to you. Tell us what we need to know. And this is part of a process that, that I used to work with. Uh, it, it impacts everything else that you do and that, that people still do. We come back. And we'd gather all the people that wanted to come public meetings, or if we needed to go meet with people in their homes, you know, we would do that kind of thing and say, this is what we heard from you. And this is how we're perceiving it. Did we get it right? Well, this part you did, that part you didn't, bum, bum, bum. And so you adjust again. And then you come back and bring all the people together. And you say, based on what we heard and, and how you kind of set us back on the right path, it looks like this is a representation of a synthesis of, of the town's goals and values and aspirations. What do you think? You know, and how we used to do that was, was come up with three wildly different concepts based on three different values like ecotopia, you know, highly uh, environmentally driven, agrotopia, you know, which was was in, in the, the rural farmland things and, and then the, you know, the great bustling economic engine. Well, invariably, people are going to see their own vision and parts of all those. And we tried to put something together that, that spoke to all that. So absolutely, we took not, not just from watching, because that's a whole other thing. You bring your professional side to it, too, looking at how it's really operating versus what people say is happening one of the best examples of that is we had all our public meetings and everybody was invited blah, 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 blah. and when it came down to it the hispanic part of austin had not come to the meetings necessarily and so we were proposing for them the same types of things that we were proposing from across the river and it's you know it's a lead balloon type of thing well okay Tell us who to talk to. We want to go to your homes and we want to find out what's really going on, what's important to you. And it turned everything on its ear for those neighborhoods and uh, in, in the best way, you know. So 
I think if you're not doing that kind of thing, you're re- it's malpractice, basically. You, you shouldn't be in the business. What do you think as a sketcher now or as a creative person? Is there a need to close any kind of feedback loop here with your audience? As far as sketching? I think well, it, any form of creative pursuit. I guess in your case, let's talk about sketching and watercolors and art. You know, in those cases, I think not as much. And I'll tell you why. It, when we elicited all this feedback working in the cities and whatnot, occasionally we would hire um, a statistician or an economist or something like that to be part of that team. And, or or, or a, a, not a publicist, but, but uh, a human relations type work with it. And they'd come back with all these numbers and formulas like we were talking about before. And it completely short circuits the possibility of creativity in a lot of ways. And it's like, you know, was it Steve Jobs said, you know, we're designing things that people didn't know they needed. And that's how I feel about when I go out sketching, I'm going to see things much differently than the people walking on the sidewalk or even the sketcher next to me. And my job isn't to draw what the people want to see, or it'd be like Thomas Kincaid, you know, with all these little cabins lit up in the woods with with fireplaces and those types of things. It's to show them things that they don't see. And they can't tell me what those things are because they're they're not experiencing in that way. So my job in that situation, I think, is to get it as true to my own honest self-expression as I can and just put it out there. Uh, somebody thinks it sucks, that's fine. <laughs> you know, they, they, they absolutely got that, that option. But uh, more often, it'll be the reaction that I, I mentioned earlier where people see things in a completely different way and you occasionally get thank yous of, you know, you've made me see my own place my own place differently. I can relate to that feeling very much because when we moved to Wisconsin, it was a very jarring experience for me personally, even as someone just getting into urban sketching, because suddenly I was surrounded in a, you know, by a landscape which didn't have iconic monuments. So Chicago makes it easy. You know that these are the things people love to see and they are objectively beautiful. So you, it's very easy to be inspired. but how do you find inspiration in a place where there isn't something that is quote unquote hashtag worthy or that, you know, would like those, those kind of things that automatically have an audience of millions? How do you get somebody interested in a street corner in a little town in Wisconsin? And I thought that I was at a huge disadvantage as an artist coming from outside. But over time, I learned that my being from outside was my superpower in this place that set me apart from everyone else. And that the way to connect with somebody was to show an honest expression and not necessarily the quote-unquote best expression. The, the, the idea of the best artist or the best art is really falling away in so many, so many respects. Like the, the importance we put on this word and the way that we sort of parse its meaning. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, you could be, and I don't know about best art, but I know that that a lot of times 
people come to a city or a town and they're they're wanting to draw the postcard views or something to make sure that they they've got those things covered and in your situation or, or even in larger cities you know what what always interested me were things like the alleys and the way that that the power poles worked through the alleys and and how that type of thing could be beautiful you know and and the fact that somebody from that town sees that you went to this trouble to depict that and saw something in it that they didn't see uh to me that that that's what it urban sketching is about whether you're in a big city or in the middle of iowa or wherever you know um is to make people see things in a in a different way and and kind of pull something out of that that's useful to them yeah now jim i have many questions still to go about uh your involvement with urban sketchers about the book you wrote about freehand drawing about your travel workshops but for the first time in all my experience as a podcaster it is me who is short on time because i have a medical appointment in a few minutes at least a phone call appointment but i feel like there's so much to go into we need to do this again sometime soon i'm way up for that this has been a blast you know um florida is is really known for um a lot of walkers you know that that type of thing and the type of conversation that you and i are having doesn't happen nearly as much and so i i would relish the opportunity you for listening i hope you enjoyed our conversation one of my big resolutions of 2022 is 2022 really we're in 2022 one of my big resolutions of 2022 is to learn in public i have done this in some ways already with my newsletter readers the next step is to talk about this podcast i will use this conversation as a model to explain the process of making the sneaky art podcast this means that i go over the technical aspects of making the show the skills you need to start with the skills you develop over time and i will also share my process of doing research for every episode this show you see just like my substack is a child of the pandemic and a lot of listeners have commented positively on the way that i navigate deep and complex subjects I have learned how to do it partly on the job and partly from following the works of people who I admire and this is what I now want to share with more people learning in public is part of sharing my journey of self education i believe doing so makes me a better writer artist podcaster and thinker it helps me to pay it forward to the various places that i've taken lessons from and it helps me to best connect with the people who really really like my work so again if you're curious and would like to go behind the scenes add sneaky art to your inbox thank you dear listeners for your time and attention i will see you in the next one